Welcome to Local Share Green Action Podcast. This show is produced by Go Green Locally, a 501c3 nonprofit providing tools and resources for people that are looking for ways to take even more successful local action that makes a difference for our people and our planet. Today on our podcast, my co-host, Tana Petrila, and I are speaking with a couple that have been studying, creating, and teaching the art of composting to regenerate soils and restore healthy microbial communities to improve and grow healthier plants and trees and more nutritious foods in our Northern Nevada communities. Keisha and Casey Ernst have been focusing on soil regeneration and habitat restoration as a team since 2011. They have studied under Dr. Elaine Ingham over the past eight years and worked alongside her in many projects. In 2018, Catalyst Bioamendments was founded as an experimental and an educational focused compost lot. The aim was to apply the techniques taught by Dr. Elaine Ingham to compost in large scale and to improve the processes to ensure the product reliably hosts diverse populations of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, and nematodes. Catalyst successfully created a biological, healthy-focused product, and since 2019, Keisha and Casey have been using the compost with their consulting. You can see examples of that success. They aim to raise the quality of food grown by helping farmers increase microbial biomass in their agricultural soils and to help farmers worldwide to improve their composting practices. Their main overarching focus is on fostering a community around microbe farming. They have a passion for helping the unseen lives in the soil come into view through the microscopic images. Welcome to the show, Keisha and Casey. Oh, thanks for having us. Hello. Hello. Thanks. Tanner and I are really excited to talk with you. So tell us about yourselves and what planted the seeds in your mind to start along the path of regenerative gardening and farming? Oh, goodness. I feel like I was born into it. My family, they're all farmers. We grew up on a cattle ranch. We always kept a garden, a really big one. And it was a focus every fall for me and my family to put up all the vegetables that we'd grown and preserve them for the winter. And I suppose when Casey met me, he caught the bug, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. I don't. I grew up in the city. I grew up in Reno, and I went grew up my whole life there. And then I went and traveled one year, and then I don't know. Yeah, I, once I came back, I ran into Keisha up in Tahoe, and she pulled me into the like the life of farming, and that's where we started our journey. Was up here in Nevada City. Awesome, Keisha and Casey. Why should gardeners and farmers be thinking about the microbial life in our soil and compost? It's a good one. It's the basis of all life on this planet, right? So the life in the soil, the life on the plants that surround you, the micro life on your body, right? And in your body, that's how we all exist. That's how we all eat. And so in the same way that we have bacteria and I don't want to speak outside of my profession, but I've read that there's protozoa, there's even fungi inside of our bodies that work with us to help us digest food. And it's our belief that if we have a thriving microbial life in the soil that our food is grown in, that that is going to translate into our entire human health. So we're really of the mind, healthy soil, healthy people. Excellent. Wow. So if we delve into that a little farther, how are rocks and dirt broken down in some of the processes? Of- yeah. So I guess back to it 
goes hand in hand with the question you just asked is like, why is it important in the soil? Because bacteria and fungi are the only things on this planet that have enzymes that can actually break down like crystalline rock structures and turn them into organic substance, right? So they can think of lichen sitting on a rock. That lichen is existing by dissolving little bits of that rock with enzymes and absorbing that nutrients up into its body. And then, of course, the lichen is the symbiotic culture of bacteria, of algae, excuse me, algae and fungi. And so the algae is photosynthesizing. But yeah, so it's pretty incredible the way they do this. And they, they can literally turn any rock or sand, silt and clay in your soil into nutrients. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit more? I'd just love to hear your perspective on how minerals and nutrients are absorbed by the plant's roots. I've heard that called the rhizophagy cycle, and Matt Powers talks a lot about that. I'd just love to hear your guys' take on, on how plant roots absorb minerals and nutrients. Oh my goodness, I wish I could go deep on rhizophagy. I haven't been trained on it, actually. I've, of course, I've talked with Elaine about it, and yeah, rhizophagy is still a little bit too complex for me, I feel like. Yeah, you probably both can speak to the exudates that Dr. Elaine Ingham likes to talk about, that plants exude like cakes and cookies for the <laughs> microbial life. Maybe you can break it down into just maybe simpler terms that we can all grasp. My goodness, the cakes and cookies is the simplest term that I could ever think of, but let me just expand a little bit more. Or Casey, Go grab the phone, you got something? So the idea that the plant is taking the sun's energy and then using it to create a food that is specifically specifically made for the microorganisms that are going to bring it the nutrients that it needs. Just the idea that that happens right there is so complex. I don't think we've even begun to understand what these plants are exuding exactly or when they're exuding this specific compound or why or how they even know what microbes are around them? How are they speaking to them? How are they sensing? How do they know? I feel like that is still beyond science in general, but definitely beyond. In the simple terms, plants exude sugars that they create from the sun's energy in, out through their root system, which calls in microorganisms that will bring them different minerals in the soil that they've been able to mine. And they, they do form this barter system underground. So if the plants are able to, yeah, use, they're basically the only thing on the planet that can take the sun's energy and turn it into sugar. And so they have the upper hand on the things that are underground, but the things underground are the only thing that can turn the rocks into nutrients. So it becomes this perfect symbiosis, really. Well, that's it, though, is it's not just sugar, right? So there's sugar, carbohydrates. There's so many different food resources that this plant is just creating from the sun's energy. It's absolutely mm. amazing. So when farmers or gardeners talk about maintaining the soil structure, what do they mean? Yeah, often, unfortunately, farmers and gardeners are having to come in and create soil structure because so much of our agricultural land or even land that isn't agricultural, anything that we've, we humans have been building on, walking on, driving on, stomping on, living on, has lost its structure. I think when you've Almost everyone has had this feeling where they step in the forest or they even step in their garden bed and you feel that soil smush down, maybe even a few inches. You can feel it with your feet. 
and instinctively, I think for me, myself, I always step back. Oh, like what? I just crushed something. You can feel it. <laughs> and so I believe like when a farmer has put in that work or happens to have ground that has beautiful soil structure, holding onto it is holding onto those microbial communities, right? When we have, when we have a healthy soil, fungi and bacteria are coming in. They're breaking down the sands, the silts, the clay. The fungi is in it's sending out these huge hyphal structures that rope in and pull and aggregate materials. And that creates these beautiful open spaces in the soil where air, water, microbes, insects, plant roots, they can all travel along those corridors. And so when you have a healthy ecosystem, what they're saying is you don't wanna break that up by tilling. You don't wanna break that up by spending too much time walking on the growing zone, driving tractors, the most compacting force on the earth is the rain, actually. You wouldn't think it, but it is. And to, to, to lose structure, the way that we're losing it is by tilling the ground, compacting the soil, or leaving it bare. And so what they're saying is we have to protect our soil structure so that our plants are still able to grow and have a vital existence on the planet to be able to fulfill their genetic potential, which in turn is going to feed us the most nutrient-dense food possible. And so that soil structure, I believe that they're talking about, it, is a nod to that ecosystem underneath the ground. That's excellent. Awesome. I'm, I've heard you guys speak in other podcast interviews and just in studying about trying to get the max amount of fungal biomass in your compost piles. And I'm curious about how many times you found to turn the piles or how, what are some techniques of composting that you found that have really helped increase the fungal biomass bio populations in your compost piles and in the soils? Yeah, I'll start with compost. The big thing we've learned over the years is like increasing and diversifying your carbon inputs, like your brown material into your compost piles. The majority of our compost piles are going to be like a high carbon material, a brown material. And really trying to find the most diversity in that category that we can. And, and with all categories, but especially the carbon category, just because that is the more that food resource for fungi. Definitely. And then as far as soil is concerned, is getting plants growing in the system. Having a living plant in that system all year round is going to help really keep things alive in your systems. A lot of farmers will they'll plant their whatever their crop is harvest their crop and then leave that field bare throughout the through the next season and really what happens there is one you've left it open to the rain so you're leaving it through the winter months it's going to get compacted that way which is going to hinder the growth of, of fungi in your soil and so if you can keep living plants in that system anything will put some kind of cover crop out there those root systems are going to continue to interact with the biology underneath the soil and still feed everything and keep everything growing throughout the entire year instead of just during your growing seasons. I would add to that as well that with composting, in the beginning, our compost piles, they were good. They were biocomplete. We had plenty of fungi in them. But what we would notice was it was almost always the same species of fungi that we would see. All the different hyphae, they look, not that we can, not that I can tell species of fungal hyphae with a microscope. I didn't mean to say it in that way, but we would only see one type of hyphal structure and perhaps they would be thinner or clear or just infrequent as we're viewing them through the microscope. As time went on, we figured out a little trick and it was to 
constantly be building our inoculum. And it's something similar to the way that you make sourdough bread or sauerkraut. That's where I got the idea from. And it wasn't my idea to start out with. I've learned that brilliant idea. I had lots of other people had this same thought, of course, <laughs> because we ferment already. Like as humans, we've been fermenting food forever. So this idea of a starter culture, of course, bang, hits your brain as soon as you start thinking about where are these microbes coming from? How are they growing if they're not present? So what the materials that Casey are talking about, all those different woody materials, they actually come with different types of fungal spores already on them. And those will grow in the compost, right? So we'll save a little bit of every single compost pile we make and we mix it back into what we call the mother pile or the mother culture or whatever you wanna call it. It's a compost pile that's very old, that's had every single diverse input that we've ever had reamended back into it. And over time, it just has grown to be, if you look at it under a microscope, it's just beautiful. There's hyphal structures everywhere. There's all kinds of different testate amoeba and the bacterial numbers are nice and low, yet there's good diversity. So it is very much, if you're trying to make good compost and you just cannot get fungi in your pile, buy compost from someone like us. Find a soil food web student that's willing to share a handful of their compost and then that will seed the life into your compost, right? We like to talk about community composting in a way where if each one of us are focusing on our own compost piles, those are all unique, unique environments with all different living microorganisms in them. And so we can actually come together, all share our culture and build a stronger and stronger microbial culture throughout our community. So that mother starter pile is that's a real, that's a real cheat way to do it if you don't want to build from scratch. <laughs> I'm curious about the method of composting that you guys employ at Catalyst. Does it start with hot composting and then as it cools, do you add worms or are there other methods that you utilize? So for us, we, we, most of our composting is just thermophilic composting. It's really our what we're permitted for, that's what our, stand, like our standard methodology is. However, we've never added worms to these compost piles, but they are now all inundated with worms. The worms found them, they're in there, they stay in all the piles. When we sell compost, you, you'll find worms in your bag of compost because we don't mix them, we don't take them out either. And they make it through the heating process, they make it through the turning process, they're in there always. So it is a little bit of thermophilic mixed with vermicomposting in some way. And so, yeah, we go through thermophilic process and then that usually is minimum 15 days, 15 to 20 days of active turning and paying monitoring. And then the compost piles, we like to let them sit and we like to let them age for at least three months, uh, closer to six months, depending. But we, we check them constantly throughout the process just to see where the microbial communities are at and see if it's actually ready to be sold. And so, yeah, usually we'll have, sometimes we have piles ready at three months. Sometimes it's more like six months. Is that kind of like a seasonal thing, like three months in the summertime, six months in the wintertime when there's more or less microbial activity going on? No, it's just, it just depends. Every, you can make a pile with the same ingredients and everything and just things just, something's just a little bit different. One pile, one pile comes out absolutely incredible. And one pile, it becomes incredible, just not at that same rate that the other one did. And it's, we're never really sure why. We do tend to try to make all of our compost in the wet times of the year just because it is easier to maintain moisture when everything's really hot. We don't want to be 160 degree compost pile in 110 degree heat. <laughs> it's, just, it's just too much heat all around. 
So what are some of the ways that you suggest people incorporate compost into their gardens? Understanding kind of what you've already said, that it's really advantageous to keep roots growing in the ground. Is it something that you recommend people add compost maybe initially when they're creating a bed or when they're starting their gardens? Sure. And this is all going to come down to cost, right? So not all compost is created equally. There's definitely compost products you can buy or even get for free from your city, $10 a yard, $50 a yard from the large municipalities. And this compost is not always bad, but you just can't know what's going in it. And so if I'm talking about, I have different recommendations for the different type of compost that you would be using. I guess I'll start with the poor compost. I would not put that into my soil without taking it first and getting some cover crop growing in it, possibly adding some biological inoculum to it and letting it age for a little while with some plants that are not high value. Because when we're working with industrial waste compost, the stuff that's just really unknown, there can just be things in there that aren't so great. I would also say if you buy compost and it still smells like manure or it still smells like urine or fowl in any way, that would be the same way to treat it is treat it like it's a garden bed and grow a few cover crops in it before you even consider putting it in your soil. Now, if you're talking about biocomplete compost, compost that you make yourself at home or compost that you buy from someone else, it is advantageous to add a little bit into the bed whenever you get started. And I'm not sure how low you could go, but it seems to me that even just a sprinkle is causing an effect. So when I plant things, depending on how, how important the plant is to me, so what the cost of the plant was, I'll use either just a, a teeny little sprinkle or perhaps a cup or two full if it's a high value tree or something like this. And what that does is it's just making sure because you've looked under the microscope, you've seen that all the organisms are present and you're putting them right there next to the plant's root zone. And this isn't about getting nutrient to your plant. It's about getting microorganisms to your plant. So oftentimes when people are putting compost down, they think I'm feeding my plant, which you do. That's absolutely true. But what we're talking about is a little bit different. You're just sprinkling microbes in the root zone so they can start working with your tree or your shrub or, or your seed. And so we also, another technique that we like that saves a lot of money, and this is what we do when we're working at large scale, when we're working with 6,000 acres, some big project, we use compost extracts. And so basically what we're doing is rinsing the microorganisms off of that compost into liquid solution that can then, depending on the sprayer, be sprayed out as low as maybe a gallon, 10 gallons per acre. And we see really incredible results with very low compost usage when we're talking about biocomplete compost. That's fascinating. I just want to ask a quick question before it leaves my mind. You said that you use compost extracts. Do We've also heard about compost tea. What do you describe as maybe the difference? And is one maybe more available for your average homeowner to create? Maybe the other one might be more complicated. Yeah. So it's like we have, I have this conversation a lot actually between when people call and ask about it. Yeah. So compost extracts, compost teas. There's basically they have two different applications. Compost extracts we like because 
Compost extracts, one is super easily to like to create at home. Anybody can do it. All you need is a bucket of water and literally like a $1 paint strainer bag from the Home Depot and you can extract compost into water. You don't need any kind of pumps, air pumps, any of that kind of stuff. But what it is, extract is good for penetrating the soil, getting down into the soil. When you make an extract, you're just taking compost, rinsing those microorganisms that are on it off, and then applying that out into a field to where those microbes can then, with that water, travel down into the root systems and actually down into the soil. Compost teas, on the other hand, one, they're, they require a, usually like more specific equipment. Everything takes a lot longer, you know, to clean it. But you're basically, you're making an extract, adding air to it, and then adding a food resource to it. And these are great when you're dealing with issues on the leaf surfaces. Because what happens when you put these microorganisms into liquid, add food resources to them, and get them stirred up with oxygen, is they're going to start multiplying. And when they multiply, they create glues and sticky film material that's going to adhere to leaf surfaces, to the stems, to the above ground part of the plant. And so it's that's great, but if you think about that now, is if you're applying it to try to get it down into the soil, a lot of those glues are going to hinder those microorganisms from being able to actually penetrate down into the soil. So we like to, that's our two big differences. Is it just depends on application and what you're using it for. But I know in the past, a lot of the times people were only making teas where an extract is it's so much easier and actually depending on what you're using it for, it can be way more effective than actually brewing a compost tea. Excellent. One of the other things that I've heard as well is when making an extract to be aware of temp temperature sensitivity, that maybe it's not a great idea to use like ice cold water. What are your thoughts about that? It's We do what we have to. <laughs> Sometimes I have made a compost extract where the water was very cold and it was warm outside. But the general thought is you want to keep the environment somewhat similar, right? So certain microorganisms are going to wake up when the ground is frozen and grow and be perfectly happy in those conditions where other microbes are going to go to sleep. And yeah, the idea is to try to keep the water about the same temperature as the outside air. And so if I have the opportunity to do what I'll usually do is take my tank of water and fill it before I make my extractor tea, maybe 24 hours before. And then that water is going to be the temperature that it is outside, which is the temperature of the compost pile that's sitting out in that weather. And yeah, I've definitely, I've definitely went outside of myself <laughs> and uh, used some really cold water to make compost extract and it still worked. But um, yeah, the idea is just to try to keep that environment as similar as possible. Oftentimes what we teach people is just like with extracts and teas even is just if you have the equipment, like it's okay to use it, but let's figure out what you have on site right now that we can do this the quickest, easiest way. And so that comes down to the water too. Is is it if the water's cold, is it going to prevent you from putting an extract out more efficiently and make you want to do it? So it's worth it to just do it with cold water if you're going to do it. If it's going to be too much of a process to let the water come up to ambient temperature and do all these other hoops to jump through, and then you're not even feeling like putting your extract out, just do what you can, do the best you can is really a big thing that we teach. I love it. Do what you can, get the biology out there. Exactly. <laughs> right? Casey, this could be a good question for you, but we're curious if you have a place in northern Nevada where you are gardening. And if so, what have you observed that changed after you improved your soils in this area with compost, northern Nevada? 
I personally do not have any gardening up there, but we have been working with the city of Reno. And there's actually, it's called the Biggest Little Dog Park. It's right downtown. I'm forgetting the names of the streets in Arlington and West or something like that. I I can't remember exactly where it is, but it's right over the train tracks, downtown Reno. And they were having issues with this beetle. The boring beetle. A certain type of boring beetle that was actually eating all the leaves off the trees in the springtime that would start to come out. And then all the leaves were getting eaten by this beetle. And so they had us come out and we actually made a compost tea for this one because we wanted to adhere it to the stem and the leaf surfaces. And we put like a, it's a type of fungi that's a bioinsecticide. And so we, when we sprayed it on that tree, we've done two treatments. And I believe last year was the first year in three years that the trees have actually had leaves and they maintained those leaves throughout the entire summer. I don't know if they maintained them through the whole year, but they did for a good amount of time. Yeah, everybody was impressed with it. And uh, underneath the canopy of trees where they planted all their perennials, they're just doing fantastic. They were really happy with how everything in the understory was growing. And the thing with these beetles is that known to have no no predators whatsoever in North America. (laughs) Because these beetles are coming over from Asia. They're an invasive species coming in on, who knows how they get here, but what was incredible was that we did see their bodies being consumed by something. And the treatment, I think, probably needs to be done more, more often throughout the year. It was amazing to see how the microbes were able to come in and work with those pests and at least start to get rid of them and lessen that pressure on those trees, which are also right downtown. So they're taking the burden of all the cars driving down the road. And I believe before this year, they were chemically treated. The city was really amazing to allow us to come in on the chemical budget and try to use microbes. So we're hoping to do more work in the future. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm familiar with the biggest little dog park that's right by the Whitney Peak Hotel. And I go rock climbing out in that climbing gym right next door. So, Oh, yeah. It's right there. <laughs> Let me ask you the insecticide, the bioinsecticide. So you're literally using microbial life to in some way it's consuming a beetle or destabilizing its health or in what way is it working curious Uh, so the one that we use is called bavaria boss it's a great bioinsecticide what it does is actually it will bore through the exoskeleton of this what it does a mini a wide variety of different pests but it actually bores inside there and then consumes them from the inside. And then when they die, they turn back into more spore and they resporulate and it actually can go out and continue to grow in the system. It's also what is called an endophyte. So it has the ability to grow into the cell walls of the plant that it's applied to, live inside that cell wall until a predator comes along, starts munching on the tree, and then it can grow out of the tree into that pre- into that whatever's predating on the tree and actually do the same thing again it's pretty incredible it is and you have to remember this is this wasn't a biology that was made in a lab this is a wild microorganism it, it lives all over and when you do when you have a thriving microbial environment in your soil there's all kinds of microbes that predate on other things they're all eating that's how the that's how the system works and so with bavaria bassiana that's just one type of fungi that predates on insects and they were able to grow it in a lab and now they can sell the spore. But you know, what we do, 
more than going out and looking for lab-grown microbes, we try to support the wild ones. And it is a little bit unknown. You'll hear me all the time, I don't know, I'm not sure, I can't say, think. <laughs> but really, we're just supporting these little guys that we know very little about because we do understand that they are all eating. And some of the things that they eat are the things that are actually pests to us or problems for us. Yeah, it's not just bugs they eat. They can also consume chemicals and turn them make them inert not a problem anymore <laughs> these microbes are amazing what they can chew on yeah we even have there are certain species of fungi that we have that can eat other species of fungi and so if you're having some kind of weird outbreak in your soil where some fusarium or something like that is taking over and killing your plants there's trichoderma that you can throw in there and that trichoderma will then outcompete the others so it's just you're messing with the balance of life and you usually have you want to come in behind after you do these kind of measures and re-inoculate with a broader spectrum of microorganisms just bring stability back to the system. But yeah, it's a pretty incredible world of microbes out there. <laughs> it also, I think, reminds me and everyone that just when you're spraying a synthetic pesticide, you really don't realize to the extent that you're disturbing the ecosystem and the repercussions that are going to happen for weeks, months, years. Right. And that's it too. And we're talking about Tanner's asking, how do we get fungi in the compost? And in a perfect world where we hadn't already obliterated just as many microbes as we could because we were afraid of them, the, they would be there. It would be easy to make amazing compost because the microbes would be covering all the organic materials, just doing their thing, living their life. But we've been spraying pesticides for a long time now and just not paying attention to that invisible life because you can't see it and it's not well understood. It's understandable why we've got to this point, but now people have to start considering the little guys and start working on that soil life. On that same topic, so do you try to let people think about maybe ways to remove chlorine or chloramine from their water before they add it to their compost pile or to their extracts? Just a the healthy microbes healthy <laughs> yeah, exactly no yeah of course chlorine and chloramine like why are they in the water lines to keep that biofilm from growing that's why we use it so they do harm the microbes in our bodies and in the soil so yeah we recommend filtering the water there's a lot of different ways to go about it we really like to use simple things humic acid is one it's actually produced in compost you can derive your own humic acid from your own compost pile. It's quite expensive to buy it at the store. Or you can go to the store. Almost any garden supplier around here that sells organic products will have humic acid. It is mined from linardite, so it's not bioavailable, but it does the trick of binding up the chlorine and the chloramine. And you don't need so much. Elaine always says one one drop per gallon. I tend to use a little bit extra just in case. <laughs> but as soon as that water changes color a little bit and turns just a little bit darker yellow, any sort of tinge of coloring, I know that there's enough in there. The other thing you can do is if you know it's chlorine, you can just let it sit because the chlorine will go away. The chloramine sticks around, but you can call your public water district and ask them what's in the water and they'll let you know. Excellent. What is something that most people don't realize about composting in general? If you could speak for the compost, what would the compost pile say? And why should people seriously consider making their own compost in place of purchasing it? 
I have so many ideas of what the compost would be saying. It's a whole, <laughs> it's a whole children's book series. <laughs> but in general, I think what people don't know is the reason we know about compost, the reason compost is popular is not necessarily because our grandparents went out in the backyard and made compost. It's because it's a waste product of a large industry. And it is those green bins that are on your corner. It's when you go out and you throw trash away, what happens to that trash and what happens to the organic materials inside of that trash. So it's really diverting waste from landfills is, I believe anyway, what popularized the term composting or the reality of compost or even the idea that we would use compost. And this hit on it a little bit earlier, but it's just what can be in that product is really not nice. Sometimes when we work with large-scale compost producers all the time, and a lot of the times when we're there, we're looking at their woody material amendment, and you know what's in there is some particle board maybe, perhaps some treated lumber or some boards that have been chipped up that were painted. And my goodness, you don't even know if there was lead in that paint, right? All of these things that get fall through the cracks can end up in our compost that we buy from the dump, and then that ends up in our food system. And I think that it would be good to reframe how we think about all this. There is this, it's, there's a beautiful thing to taking people's trash and turning it into a garden amendment, right? But with just a little bit of thought, the big guys could really change their processes and create something that is a home for microbes. So if I had to speak for the compost, I would say the microbes want somewhere healthy to live and they're not going to be able to reproduce in a compost pile that's full of chemicals. And we have to reorient how we're thinking. And it's not just us on the small scale, but the big guys as well. Compost should be produced to be a home for microbes to reproduce, not as just a waste product. And so I think as education becomes more normal and people start hearing more about the microbes and these processes, I think there's real hope that if it goes large scale, if communities really start thinking about the fact that their organic materials are their most precious resource, it's not something to throw in the dump and it's certainly not something to pay somebody to take away. My livelihood is made off of recycling organic materials and making it into compost. And yeah, I guess that's the message is the organic materials are really valuable if we know how to use them. I love it so much. Thank you. And we really appreciate that you guys at Catalyst take so much care with every single ingredient and you'll even buy, you'll even buy the ingredients for your compost pile sometimes. So that's just, it's just incredible. And you guys are great role models for every community. A little bit on horse manure. There's a, a compound called ivermectin and other contaminants that we've heard about in horse manure. Can you guys speak a little bit about about using horse manure in a compost pile? Yeah, so actually that is the only type of manure that we use in our compost. It's one, it's the thing that's been available to us, but it's also, we have a special relationship with this horse farm. It's a high-end horse farm, so the, the animals are only eating alfalfa, like organic alfalfa. And then again, like you, you mentioned, there's, it is like, when they bring a new horse in or if any of the horses are feeling sick and they have to give these horses antibiotics or they these dewormers ivermectin they actually separate that manure out for us but it is totally something that if you are getting a manure from a large feedlots from large stables where they're just indiscriminately giving antibiotics and dewormers that stuff does make it through 
into the poop. It makes it into the manure. And so that stuff can end up in your compost piles as well. And some people like to say that like these dewormers only attack the stomach parasite worm, but physiologically speaking, they're not that much different than the ones that live in the soil. And they, it does hinder their growth. It can kill them as well. A lot of this, a lot of any dewormers that you're putting in your bodies make it through your system and out into the fields and it starts killing off the worms out there too. Is there any way that our communities can come together for composting projects that you suggest? It's obvious that you've got, you've certainly been doing things in Reno and letting people know what some of the possibilities are to use microbial life, like what you've done with the dog park, but maybe what are some other projects that you've seen maybe in other places as well? Yeah, the community composting reality is, it makes it fun. Let's be real. Composting is mixing organic materials together with water. <laughs> You've got a pitchfork and it's it's not as exciting as it sounds in these radio interviews. <laughs> and so I find that if you want to bring a community together to create compost, first of all, there's the education, right? Everybody has to know why they're going to go so far out of the normal way of just making a pile and letting it sit. So there's learning about the microbes and there's learning how to do it. And then there's finding your team. We, every single place we work, and I'm certain after the workshop in Reno, we'll have a Reno composting crew, but everywhere we held a workshop, we meet all of these local folks from around that have the same passions as we do. We sit down, we talk about how we're going to make the compost and they get the education and then we get to watch them go out and make it happen. And I have endless examples of stories of people just changing their reality right where they're at. I think one of my favorite ones was from Southern California. And there was a girl in our workshop who, she was so passionate about changing the composting program at her university to biocomplete compost. And uh, her teacher just didn't agree. And she actually asked me what I could tell her to say to this teacher to convince her, to convince them to let her start the program. And I was not as hopeful as she was. I said, these people's minds are probably set. I don't know what you're going to be able to do to convince them. Her and some other people from the group ended up going out and convincing them and with their own bodies, hand-turned piles. I don't remember how many tons it was, but they produced many tons of biocomplete compost using the waste from the university. And then the compost was working so well that the university decided, hey, let's make a program out of this. And they let her go further. And Getting together with your community, your group, your people who are crazy microbe folks, finding a location to compost, and then finding materials and letting it play out. It's pretty simple. <laughs> Love it. So what resource, maybe a book, a website, or a film has been particularly helpful or informative to you that you'd like to share with the community? Sure. I'll just, I'll go to my favorite. It's called Teeming with Microbes. It's a book by Jeff Lowenthal. And it really, he was a student of Elaine's many years ago, and he spent a lot of time breaking down the information that she teaches and making it very digestible and easy to understand in a short book format. That was my gateway drug, so to speak, to the microbial world. And it's how I found Elaine in the beginning. And I've heard so many consultants and soil food web people point to that book. Awesome. Wonderful. Keisha and Casey. Where can we learn more about your upcoming events or reach out if we have questions? Great. Yeah, we have an event coming up this coming May. It's going to be the 27th of May. 
and it's going to be a full day event. We're going to be in Reno with all of our favorite composters, checking out the microbes and learning how to develop our practices a little bit more. They get more in-depth. We're going to talk about hot composting. We're going to talk about vermicomposting. We're going to talk about static composting. So we're going to we're going to figure out exactly the best way for you to make compost at home and help you learn how to do it. So yeah, you can we have a big series like across the United States coming up that you can find at our website catalystbioamendments.com and also on our Instagram at, at catalystbioamendments. We post a lot of information on there, so yeah, that's where you can and oh also too if you wanted to reach out through Instagram or catalystbioamendments at gmail.com. Always appreciated that you guys are really responsive on your Instagram account. I've been talking to you since day one of starting the Soil Food Web School. <laughs> we are very easy to get in contact with. If you want to find us right on any of the channels, we'll get back with you for sure. If you haven't yet visited your local green online hub, then please visit gogreenlocally.org and check out the directories for events, groups, businesses, online resources, and local support listings for your area. If you find something is missing, then let us know or just log in and add it.